All right, we're going to get started. Let me just say, some of you concerned tonight, in honor of Ezekiel, I am growing my beard out until Sunday, and I will cut it off and divide it into three portions, then burn part of it, let part of it blow in the wind, and scatter on the mural of Jerusalem we're going to build on the stage while I lay and preach. All right? And bound on the side. That's right, only on one side. But not. I'm not going to lay there for for a year and a half. I'm not going to be laying on my side for a year and a half. So that's a long sermon, isn't it? I mean, y'all complain sometimes about 30-minute sermons. What about a year and a half sermon, you know? And I will not be cooking over human or cow dung on Sunday, all right? All right, let's talk about the Old Testament a little bit. We're going to, we'll get to uh, Ezekiel in a moment, but let's talk about lamentations first. What are you in Lamentations? Yeah. Well, that's because they're written around the same time in a lot of ways, different places. But, yeah, and judgment of, of God is, you know, these are prophets that were in different places and different times, but they have a very similar message, and the people never responded to it. Now, Lamentations, obviously, is Jeremiah's um, kind of lament over what has occurred at Jerusalem. So it is his song of lament is what it is. So Groundhog Day, yeah. Ezekiel won't feel like that because there's nobody quite like Ezekiel. And some of the others will be similar messages, but they'll be shorter, minor prophets to get there. No, what I'm saying is we get to Ezekiel's different. I mean, there'll still be judgment. There'll still be those things. But like we've already mentioned, his tactics are different and strange. And then when we get to the minor prophets, there'll be similar messages sometimes, but they're shorter books and they play out a little differently. You know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, you feel like sometimes you read four or five days in a row of the same kind of uh, declarations. So, All right, what questions do you have or observations from the book of Lamentations? Did you know that one of the great hymns is written from the book of Lamentations? Great is thy faithfulness. And what's interesting is the context around which it is written. Um, it comes in, I remember where it is, only like three days of lamentation. So, Well, it's Jeremiah getting upset. You know, I mean, it's, you have in lamentations basically, you know, people, we talked last week about the, the, the comparison between Jeremiah and Jesus in some, some instances. You know, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem, and it's a brief dialogue in Scripture. This is kind of Jeremiah's prolonged grieving about his city. So I don't know that the people... Now, in generations later, the Israelites would remember this and quote this and read this to remind themselves of what it would be like for Jerusalem to fall. But it's really Jeremiah's upset at the destruction. Look at look at Lamentations 3. Um, and just look at this, like starting in verse, uh, well, we'll just start in verse 1. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Uh, I'm a man who's seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away, made me walk in darkness. He has, has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. Now, who is the he that Jeremiah is talking about? The Lord. 
He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He's walled me in so I cannot escape. He's weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He's barred me my way with blocks of stone. He's made my path crooked like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. Doesn't that sound horrible? He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. Now that is as desperate as you can get, right? That's pretty bad. And then right after that, I remember it, my wandering, the wilderness. I remember that my soul is downcast. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions, they fail not. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Now, you just think about what he's gone through in those verses. And then to come with that great declaration of faith. It's an amazing portion of Scripture. I know. Yes. I mean, what he basically says is, because God loves me, I haven't been killed. I've had everything short of being killed. But God loves me, so I'm not killed yet. I'm still serving His purpose. And morning by morning, new mercies I see. Just an amazing verse. Yeah, you might as well just submit. You know, and that's what, what's interesting is, note when you read Lamentations on the heels of Jeremiah, what you realize is that's what he tried to get the people to do. Remember he said, just, just give in to the Babylonians, just let it happen and it'll be easier. Just... Go under their yoke because that's the Lord's yoke and it'll be easier. And they refused and they refused and they refused. He said, listen, just submit to his discipline early. Anything else in Lamentations that you want to talk about? And then he says right after that, so if there's something going on, let's examine ourselves. Right Now, what I think is interesting there is he doesn't say, because Jeremiah had every right to say, let me examine them and see what they have done wrong. But instead, he says, let us examine us. And as believers, what we have to realize is there are appropriate moments to question what's happening. But it must always be an introspection of us, not of them. We're pretty good as Christians of saying the problem is them. There's that old cartoon that... Um, Set Pogo. Anybody used to read Pogo? We have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. All right? Y'all didn't think I'd know about Pogo, did you? <laughs> I don't know if it came from Pogo either, but I don't, originally, but it was in Pogo. All right, anything else in Lamentations? All right, let's go to Ezekiel. I've labeled Ezekiel the, the easiest book in the Bible to understand, except for Revelation. Revelation is a little easier. No, it's crazy, isn't it? You have in your hand a sheet. One of the interesting things about Ezekiel 
is he gives some exact dates. Now, they're not exact for us, but through different things, we can pretty much figure them out. Now, here's the thing. When you get to heaven, you're not, I don't, you don't need to walk up to Ezekiel and go, man, what you did on June 22nd, 592 B.C. was unbelievable, all right? Now, you know, this is a little bit of approximation, but it's pretty close. They've been able to tie it down, and part of that is because he gives pretty specific things. And so you see, uh, like his vision in chapter 1 is on June 15th or thereabouts, 592 B.C., Okay, is called to be a watchman, June 22nd. So because he gives those seven days later and then two months later, and he gives pretty specific times. So uh, I thought this might be interesting for you to see. Now, here's some important things to remember. Okay, Five, Anybody remember when Jerusalem was destroyed? 586 is when the siege really kind of happened. Now, the final kind of wave is somewhere in the 570s. But what you need to understand is because... Carol, who can't get up here with us to, because she's cleaning the kitchen, she caught me today on my way down. There. I wasn't thinking about Ezekiel when she caught me. She caught me on my way through and uh, asked me, how can he be prophesying about things that are going to happen in Jerusalem that have already happened when he is in exile? What we have to remember is he went with the first group of exiles. So he's there before the big destruction of Jerusalem. Remember in 597 or thereabouts, they take over some young people and some leaders and priests, and Ezekiel is one of the priests they take. And so they take Ezekiel, and they take him over there, and while he's there, he has these visions about what the remnant or the people that have been taken to Babylon must do and what is going to happen in Jerusalem back where he came from. And so you have to think about this, that he has already been displaced, and he's been serving as a prophet now for the people that have been displaced, and giving warning to Judah, that is Jerusalem, and what's going to happen there. Okay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel is one of the young... I mean, when you read the first... Which we'll read Daniel not too long. Uh, uh, in fact, we read Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's not as long as Jeremiah, but it's not real short. We'll read Ezekiel a lot in November, and then the next book is Daniel. Daniel is one of those taken, and when you read Daniel, he's taken because he's apparently strong and good looking. Leadership potential. So, all right, so what questions do you have about Ezekiel? Well, son of man was um, a technical term in the Old Testament that wasn't directly connected with Jesus until Jesus Now, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that will connect to Jesus, but it was just a term used of a servant of God uh, in some ways. Um, Now, it became, once Jesus came and that title was assigned to him, and even in some of Daniel's writings that that gets elevated, it's kind of like in Isaiah where you have the servant that suffers, but then when you get to Jesus, he is the suffering servant. It's kind of like you are a son of man, but I am the son of man. So it raises that. It's not that he's not identifying him with Jesus at all, but uh, doing that. Yes, Ms. Hodges. Ezekiel, as called by God, was very much, he preached sermons that would get him fired in churches today. Because he didn't say a word during that sermon, if you consider it that, that prophecy. No, it was during the day. He would have been laying out in the middle of town. Well, I 
I think there is some ambiguity there about the fact that at night he may have gone home and come out the next day and laid down to symbolize another day. Um, and so there's some ambiguity if it was continuously 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But definitely 390 days, majorities of those days, while the sun was up and people were milling around, he was lying there. Okay. Now just imagine if you walked through, if you drove through the city of Goodlettsville every day and on the city hall was a guy that had constructed a replica of Goodlettsville and laid and watched it on one side for 390 days. Yeah, went, probably went to Waffle House. Went home, got it, got him a Got it smashed, smothered, covered. I think there was a time when he gave explanation, but they would have known that Israel was that they would have known Jerusalem. They would have gotten that it was under attack. Now him laying on his side, why maybe not? And this is not in any way the craziest thing he does. Good, yes. Well, so will some of his other antics that I will not be repeating as a pastor. Well, and here's the reason. I mean, as disgusting as that sounds, cooking over cow dung was not an uncommon practice. You, that's, you cooked over cow dung. Um, you did not cook over human dung. Yeah. And so that was, you were unclean if you did that, uh, but not over cow. And so he was, he, he did, you know, do that. Now, he argued his point, yes. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing I think happened there is God, I mean, first of all, to assume, to think that God didn't know that Ezekiel was going to say that and that he was eventually going to let him do this to, to misunderstand who God is. But um, he wanted Ezekiel to understand the point. And the point was that you have become unclean as a nation. Now, Ezekiel had not yet, and I think, he wanted Ezekiel to understand the severity of it. And so that was why, I mean, it would have been like he came out and uh, you couldn't say anything more shocking to Ezekiel than go get some human dung and cook over it. Now, that's pretty shocking for all of us, right? But, I mean, for him, that was just like, no. Fire purifies. They didn't have stoves. They didn't have ranges or ovens. They didn't have that kind of stuff, you know got to have some, some burnable, consumable materials. Waste not, won't not, right? What's that? It's organic, mulch, you know, compost. You just get it? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. You, you're not talking about, we, we think, well, why don't you just go chop out some wood? I mean, they were, there wasn't a lot of wood around. They didn't have, you know, and they also didn't have bulldozers. They had axes, but it was a hard day's work to get some firewood. Al's going to come now give a dissertation on the benefits of using cow dung in your campfire cooking. We'll get Bear Grylls in here. He can give us some good stuff. Bear, bear will help. I've seen it. Bear eat animal dung. Yeah. So, Anything else? Now that we've covered the dung, all right? What else in Ezekiel? Questions you have? Thoughts? Yeah, Ezekiel is very, and, and what you have to understand, I think, one of the things that you have to understand through Ezekiel is God communicates his message through the personality 
of his called person. Now, the way the reason I say that is this. God has the same message and has for years. But he uses different people to communicate that, and he allows people within who they are to communicate in who they are. And so Ezekiel was a different kind of person than Jeremiah. He just was. And so God didn't make Ezekiel into somebody else and then tell him to tell the message. He just used who Ezekiel was to communicate the message. Uh, I think that's what's going on here. Does that make sense? I mean, so, and I think in churches we have to to remember that. I, I, I don't think... I think at times churches have been guilty of trying to say, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to look and act and talk exactly like this. Instead of, God wants you to be you, just you sold out to the Lord and following Him with your personality and traits. So, and I think that's what happens in Ezekiel. They thought he was crazy until things started coming true. Uh, let me read you. I, I found this uh, in some research. Uh, some ways that Ezekiel has been described. Okay, His behavior has been called pathological, psychic, schizophrenic, epileptic, catatonic, psychotic, and paranoid. About 50 years ago, uh, a psychologist did a Freudian analysis of Ezekiel. He labeled Ezekiel as a true psychotic characterized by narcissistic, masochistic conflict with attendant fantasies of castration and unconscious sexual regression, schizophrenic withdrawal, and delusions of persecution and grandeur. Yeah, that's catatonic. That's what that is, sorry. So in other words, even people the outside of faith today that try to analyze him think he's crazy. But, it, yeah, that's what it means. Ezekiel, anytime there's an L at the end of a, of a word, it means God. Okay? Or at the beginning, Elijah, L, that's, that's God. That's one of the Hebrew words for God. Ezekiel is God. Daniel is God. Okay, there's, there's a God portion of that. And so, uh, Elijah is, the Yahweh is my God. Eli is my God. Um, so you get to hear, and Ezekiel is the my God or God strengthens. Ezekiel means that. Leslie, about the wheels within the wheels and the no, we haven't. Do you want to talk about them? I'd love to tell you what they are, but I don't have a clue. I, here's here's what it is. I think. Okay. Um. I think that. Ezekiel saw something he could not describe. Now, if you want to read some fascinating, untrue stuff, go on Google and put in Ezekiel aliens. Because there are people out there that think he had an extraterrestrial encounter. Uh, I mentioned a movie last week called Knowing with Nicolas Cage. Um, That's kind of the view that they end up with. But the aliens are not aliens, they're glorified believers who have already been taken to heaven and come back to take people to heaven. Anyway, 
That's what you read some crazy stuff, you can go read that. I think they were just, Ezekiel saw a vision of God, and he could not explain what he saw. Now, there are symbolic parts of it. And so, if you notice, there are eyes everywhere. There are eyes on the wheels. There's eyes covering people. I mean, you know, there are eyes everywhere. And, and part of what that means is that God sees all. I mean, when there are eyes everywhere, I mean, God sees um, all things. He's not like us. There are things that are uh, different than us. You have to understand that. Um, there's uh, a sense that God is everywhere at all times. I mean, He is not residing in the temple in Jerusalem. He's appearing to Ezekiel at a river in Babylon. Well, that wasn't like everybody else's gods who were localized. He was doing that. There are different ones that talk about the four faces, that human is the highest creation, um, lion is the greatest of the undomesticated beast, the oxen is the greatest of the domesticated beast, and the eagle is the greatest of the birds. And so those are the four, and just showing God's power and strength that those four are there. There are also those that say it goes back to the promise to Noah, that God made a promise to Noah, man. He made a promise to uh, created order, undomesticated, domesticated animal and bird, that he would not flood the earth again. And so somehow it relates to that. The point of it is, God showed up and spoke to Ezekiel and called him into ministry. And it was such an amazing thing, he couldn't really describe it. I think you can get lost in the trying to draw it and figure it out, and what's happening here and there, and what the beings look like and all that, and miss the point that God appeared and spoke and it changed Isaiah, I mean, changed Ezekiel's life. It's very much like Isaiah chapter 6. Although Isaiah, being who Isaiah is, describes it more coherently. Ezekiel being a little more eccentric, uh, and I mean that in a good way, um, describes it in crazy ways. I mean, even to the point of the vision of Jerusalem, okay, when Jerusalem's going to get destroyed and he goes to the gate and he sees people at the gate bowing down to this and he goes to the temple and he goes and God takes him under the temple through a hole and around. I mean, I'm not saying that God didn't give him that vision, but to describe it in that way, Isaiah could have, probably would have said, I had a vision from the Lord and the people in Israel are worshiping the sun that they should never worship. They're, you know, but Ezekiel gives you this sense of flying over. I mean, it's like you're being taken on a journey from place to place. And he's a master storyteller in that way, going from place to place and through the hole that was specially built into the temple to get inside the temple and on the temple walls or all of these. Instead of just saying, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, the Lord's house has been defiled and they have worshipped all kinds of beings they shouldn't be worshipping. Ezekiel, and he may just be recording exactly what the vision is God gave him, but he wants to tell it with the, the flair of the story. Yeah, they were hovercraft that we're inventing in the future. No. Spaceships that can hover. No, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, and the point of that is God can move in all directions in any place at any time. He's not bound by space or time. Omnipresent, omniscient, all that. Any other questions on Ezekiel, Miss Ann? Yeah, they don't worship the sun, though. That was an Egyptian kind of thing. Now, there were lots of cultures in the ancient world that worshiped the sun because the warmest thing they knew was the sun. I mean, they didn't have electric heaters. They didn't have seat warmers in their car. So the only thing that produced heat for them was 
the sun. It was the giver of life. It was this mysterious object that appeared and then disappeared and all that. And so there, there was a lot of sun worship, but the Egyptians, the king, uh, sun god was named Ra. Uh, it was a big deal for them. And of course, you worship the sun facing east because it rises in the east. I think it's more, I think in Ezekiel's time, it's more a reference to the Passover. Because the Passover was they put the blood on the door, and then they passed over the blood on the door, and if you didn't have the blood, if there was not a mark, then you destroyed them. And that's the phrasing that's used in Ezekiel. If the mark is not present, then it's you're done. So, because the because the, they're opposite in Revelation, when we get there, the mark of the beast, whatever that whatever else it means, that's a mark that the evil one is placing, not that God is placing on the remnant. Yeah, and so I think that in this term, it's referring back to the Passover to remind them of how He rescued them out of the Passover. He's going to rescue some out of this as well. All right. Anything else? We got lots of time with Ezekiel, so. All right, let's go to the New Testament. Let's talk about um, Philemon. Doesn't take long to read Philemon, right? It's a short one-day letter. What would you notice about that? By the way, I've got... I'll just get these out at the end. We've got Hebrews and Philemon uh, introduction. What day was Philemon? Philemon was the 29th. Maybe October. 1,170 is the page. Philemon. Tell me, somebody tell me basically what's happening in Philemon. Who is Paul writing to? Yes. Who is Philemon? Right. Yeah. Philemon, Philemon, Philiam, however you want to. From the south, we just call him Philemon. Not just as a slave. Right. He's okay to go back and work for him, but. It's a different relationship. It's an interesting letter. It's the only letter like it we have in the Bible. This is a personal issue, but Paul wrote it in a way that it would be read outside of the personal issue. So Paul writes and says, hey, I met a guy. Basically, it's I met a guy in prison. Uh, And this guy has become a believer. And as he's become a believer, he told me about you. And I remembered you, or I remembered, not you, but I, I've heard stories of you. I hear great things about you. And I have encouraged him. I wanted him to stay here, but he felt he needed to go back. So he's coming back to you, and as he's coming back, accept him, please. Look, treat him well. I'll pay whatever he owes you, whatever he stole, whatever labor. I'll be there myself. Get a guest bedroom. I love that part. Can you get a guest room ready? I'll be there sometime. Uh, and. Uh, also, like Paul, when he says, you know, you don't have to take my advice, but you are responsible for your eternal salvation based on my work. So, you know, Paul kind of strong arms him a little bit there. And I just uh, like how he kind of uses that a little bit. And uh, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I'll pay him back. And, you know, he goes, he goes now, I understand you don't have to do this, but I won't even mention the fact that you owe your soul to me. Right? I won't. I could tell you, yeah, I could demand because you're a Christian that you do this, but I won't do that. I'll let you make up your own mind. Yeah, that Paul was good. God, Paul was good at that kind of stuff, right? 
It's like a preacher getting up on Sunday morning and saying, now, I'm not going to demand. I could. I could demand in the name of Christ that everybody here pull out their wallet and give what you're supposed to give. I'm not going to demand that. You just do whatever you think is best. I know what Christ would think, but you do what you think is best. Right? He sounds like Paul would have been a pretty good politician. Right, any questions about Philemon? 25 verses, one of the shortest books in the Bible. We covered it in one day. It's good. But it does remind us, um, uh, it does remind us that uh, there, Paul dealt with, sometimes we think of Paul as kind of going and planting a church, and there were church issues, but Paul dealt with personal issues with people uh, as this pastor who had started many, many churches. All right, let's talk about Hebrews. Somebody tell me who wrote the book of Hebrews. If you can tell me, you can be the first. Nobody knows. Uh, it was Origen in about uh, the second or third century who said, only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay? Now, obviously, the people that were it was written to know, but nobody really, really has a, a firm knowledge. Let me tell you some people... We got a lot of time in Hebrews too, and so we'll cover some stuff tonight, but we don't have to cover it all. Let me tell you some people that are suggested as writers of Hebrews. Anybody want to guess people that they've suggested wrote Hebrews? Paul. Paul is the suggested one. Why? Mainly because he wrote everything else in the New Testament. Uh, several reasons. Faith is an important topic in the book. The writers associated with Timothy. Um, Habakkuk. This is crazy one. Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in three places in the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. So there's only three places it's quoted, and Paul wrote the other two books that it's quoted in. Uh, strong emphasis on the personal work of Christ, uh, but there are several reasons not to think it's Pauline. Uh, it doesn't fit his style. writer seems to put himself out of the circle of the New Testament apostles in 2, 3, and 4. The style of writing is much more classical. Understand that means it's much um, better. Uh, it's it's a well-written book, in other words. It's not free-flowing. It's structured really well. So, uh, And also, the stress, there seems to be a lot. Now, it was written to Hebrews, but there seems to be a lot of Jewishness in this book. That's, that's not a bad thing, but Paul distanced himself from that in a lot of ways. So, Silas is also mentioned. First uh, Peter in this epistle note that Silas was the amanuensis. You remember what amanuensis is? Amanuensis was secretary that wrote down. Silas was the the person that wrote for Paul, uh, or I mean, wrote, not for Paul, that wrote for Peter in First Peter. Um, and so they're saying that it sounds like the way he wrote First Peter for Peter. Peter would dictate it. He would write it out. So they'd say maybe Silas is. Barnabas, uh, a church father named Tertullian, thought that Barnabas must have been the author. Um, who knows? All right. Apollos. Anybody remember Apollos' name in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians, right? Um, he's given credit. Here is kind of the argument that is winning the day for those that care about it winning the day. For those that really try to figure it out, uh, David Allen of Southwestern Seminary wrote a dissertation trying to prove that Luke is the author of Hebrews. And that view is gaining some ground. Nobody really knows, but 
you know, anybody's guess is as good as anybody's guess. There's uh, evidence in history. Um, Clement of Alexandria says, The epistle to the Hebrews is the work of Paul. It was written in the Hebrews. Luke translated it carefully and published it for the Greeks. So that was one of the first things. Origen, I mentioned earlier, uh, who wrote it officially. But who wrote the epistle in truth? God knows. Um, he said some have said that Clement has and others have said Luke. So in that statement immediately after he says Luke. There, similarity, there are 53 words in the New Testament that are only found in Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. So there, that is similarity. It's stylistically that way. Luke was a trained doctor and writer. And so there's a bunch of other Greek reasons. You don't care about the infinitive posekion. But it doesn't really matter anyway. All right? What questions do you have about Hebrews? Okay, Miss Ann, I've already been warned that you've got a question here. Let me let me refresh myself for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what 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 the author is doing there is very blatantly equating Jesus as Lord and God as equal. And so what he's saying is when it says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens of your hands, they're saying that Jesus was the instrument of creation and that God is acknowledging that in that quote. For us, between us and God, Lord is a title of authority and position. He is Lord and we are not. Okay? And so, uh, but between the Trinity... It's just a statement of position that does not mean that anyone is higher or lower than the other. Okay? For instance, and this is not a perfect example, but when I am among you, I am your pastor. And people call me pastor here. It means that I am the leader of this congregation. Okay? And there's an element, not not necessarily of, of better, but there's an element of structure there. When I'm at the Tennessee Baptist Convention and somebody's another pastor says to me, Hey, pastor, it's just a title of who I am. It doesn't relate to him necessarily. Does that make sense? And so when you've got the Trinity, when we say Lord, there's an obvious understanding we're not him, and there is a higher position there. But when they say unto one another, there's no, there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. Yeah, but then you also have Colossians that says that Jesus is the creator of all things. That the Bible is pretty consistent that Jesus is the agent of creation. No, I, no, I don't think so. Not, I don't think that's what it, that it's just, I don't think it's bifurcating that relationship that much. Well, we'll I will take that afterwards. Well, I think what that, that is implying there is in our current state, we will not. Not in our glorified state. And God, now God is, you have to understand that that God is not physical. God is spirit. Now, when He came to Earth, He took on physical being in the form of Jesus Christ. But He is not, and so seeing Him, we're going to get deep here for a second. Seeing Him 
in our glorified state may not be seeing like we see right now. But we will see Him, even though we don't see Him. The way we see. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think Jesus will be, I mean, the, the, the Scripture talks about Him being in the glorified body. Now, what that means now, I don't, that's above above our intellectual capability to discern. That's a fancy way of saying above our pay grade, right? Yeah, that is. I have to patent that. I don't think I've heard that. Above our intellectual capability to discern. All right, what else in Hebrews? Yeah, this was written primarily to Jews. In fact, there are a lot of people that think it was written to Jewish priests who had converted to Christianity. You know, in Acts we have that statement that and many of the priests came to know the Lord. Many of those that came were priests. They, they believed that what was happening here is there were some of them that were Jewish priests who had become Christians and then become uncomfortable with some of the worship and way Christianity was playing out. And they were concerned and thought about going back to the Jewish faith all the ritualistic system, that whole thing. And so this author is writing and saying, why in the world would you go from better to worse? Why would you go from Jesus to angels or Jesus to Moses or Jesus to high priest? Why would you leave Jesus for anything? So that's is written mainly to Jewish people. Anything else in these first few chapters of Hebrews? No. We have not got to the infamous chapter 6. Okay. We'll discuss that next week. Next week we'll talk about chapter 6 and we'll talk about Melchizedek. And we'll talk about my favorite, one of my favorite blessings in all of Scripture, which most people don't know is tucked away in the book of Hebrews. All right. We're done.